This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Have you been waiting for just the right job? Then welcome to the end of your search. Amazon has seasonal warehouse jobs in your area, and now is a great time to apply. You can start getting paid right away and work close to home. Applying is easy. You don't even need an interview. So what are you waiting for? Come join the team and get a great seasonal job offer today. Visit Amazon.com slash hiring. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer. In 1848, a trio of sisters... 15-year-old Margaret, 12-year-old Kate, and 17-year-old Leah Fox moved with their parents into a small house in upstate New York that had a reputation for being haunted. Almost immediately after moving in, strange things began to happen around the Fox home, much to the consternation of the girl's very superstitious mother. Every night the family was tormented by unexplained noises, strange rapping on the walls, doors that appeared to close by themselves, and objects that moved by invisible hands. It wasn't long before Maggie and Kate began claiming they had been in communication with the spirit of a dead man in their basement. The events that occurred in the Fox sisters' home set into motion a newfound American fascination with ghosts. Eventually, the young women would take their act on the road and begin making money by putting on seances and spiritualist shows for stunned audiences. It didn't matter that by 1888, Margaret Fox was ready to fess up that she and her sisters had been conning everyone with simple parlor tricks, and that the whole thing had begun as a game to fool their mother. By then, spiritualism was all the rage, and people believed what they wanted to believe, despite the facts laid out for them. In some ways, history never changes. With so many people losing family members to disease and to being killed in the Civil War, people were desperate to communicate with their deceased loved ones. The term spiritualism first appeared in a book written by a skeptic named John Ross Dix, who described the burgeoning movement as one more humbug afflicting America. Skeptics like Dix were shocked to discover that Americans were proving to be so gullible. For a time, spiritualism became the new fad that overtook another homegrown philosophy, transcendentalism. That was a movement that took off in 1836 after the publication of Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Nature. In it, Emerson emphasized personal enlightenment free from organized religion. Emerson believed we could all achieve personal growth by contemplating nature and not looking towards spiritual deities. But the spiritualist movement was seen by many transcendentalists as an outright rejection of their beliefs. Now, rather than looking to themselves and to nature for answers, people were talking to ghosts to find enlightenment. By the time spiritualism had fully taken root in the public's imagination, there were plenty of transcendentalists who thoroughly resented the spiritualists. Along with rejecting the transcendentalist philosophy, spiritualism also rejected most of the dogma surrounding mainstream religion, and instead replaced it with their own new reality— To the spiritualists, there was no heaven or hell. Rather, the spirits all existed in a peaceful afterlife known as Summerland. 
This was a place without pain or judgment, where it was comforting to many to know their loved ones didn't suffer and didn't get arbitrarily sentenced to eternal damnation the way many Christian denominations taught. Spiritualism opened the doors for anyone to make contact with the great beyond, not just trained members of the clergy. Knowing all that, it's easy to see why so many spiritualists ganged up on Maggie Fox after she made her startling admission that everything she and her sisters had done had been a fraud. There was so much public backlash against Maggie that she eventually was forced to recant her own confession. Hardcore spiritualists weren't about to allow this one old woman to tear everything down they had come to believe. In 1874, spiritualism had gone so mainstream that it now had its own press corps. In that year, spiritualist newspapers were all abuzz about the strange things happening in a remote Vermont farmhouse in the isolated mountain town of Chittenden. There lived two brothers, William and Horatio Eddy, along with their sister Mary. From the outside, the house where the siblings lived was nothing special. A shabby two-and-a-half-story tall wood frame structure in desperate need of repair. But on the inside, the place had become ground zero for practically every supernatural event you can think of. People came from all over the world to see the ghosts for themselves. But in 1874, a different visitor arrived at the Eddy farm. A scientist and seasoned investigator, ready to debunk all the paranormal activity once and for all. What happened next would change the man's life forever. I'm Nate Hale. And in the spirit of the season, from here on out, all my podcasts are going to be pumpkin spice scented. And this is The Conspirators. In New York City during the summer of 1874, a successful 42-year-old lawyer named Henry Steele Olcott stopped by a newsstand and picked up a copy of a spiritualist newspaper. Olcott considered himself a rational individual, and later on he wouldn't be able to say just what it was that caused him to pick the paper up that day. But what he read in it caught his attention immediately. It was an article about a pair of brothers from Vermont named William and Horatio Eddy who claimed to be able to see, converse with, and even touch the spirits of the dead. Olcott was an ardent skeptic, and he was positive these two brothers were just conning gullible people out of their money. He convinced an influential newspaper, the New York Daily Graphic, to send him to Vermont to find out what was really going on at the Eddy Brothers' farm. If there was anyone in America at the time who could get to the bottom of what was really happening at the Eddy farm, it was Henry Olcott. He was brilliant, for one thing. Born in Orange, New Jersey in 1832... Henry attended college in New York City where he went on to study scientific agriculture. When he was still in his early 20s, he received international recognition for developing a model farm and for founding his own agricultural school. He also published multiple scientific papers, all of which led to the U.S. government appointing him the title of Chief Commissioner of Agriculture, the highest such post in the country at the time. Henry Olcott was such a hot commodity for a while that several other countries began sending him lucrative offers to leave the U.S. and come work for them. Instead, he took on the position of agriculture editor for Horace Greeley's paper, the New York Tribune. When the Civil War broke out, Olcott enlisted and was soon given the title of special investigator. 
His job during the war was to root out corruption in military arsenals and naval shipyards. And he was good at his job. Henry had a keen eye for detail and would often notice the little things that others missed. He would eventually be promoted to the rank of colonel and receive personal congratulations from Secretary of War Edwin Stanton on a job well done. In fact, Stanton was so taken with Henry's skills as an investigator that in 1865 he appointed him to a three-man panel to investigate the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. Following the war, Henry returned to New York to study law, another job he proved to be very successful at. The creator of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, once wrote about Olcott in his book, The History of Spiritualism, that Olcott was a man of clear brain and outstanding ability, with a high sense of honor, loyal to a fault, unselfish, and with that rare moral courage which will follow truth and accept results, even when they oppose one's expectations and desires. He was no mystical dreamer, but a very practical man of affairs. Looking at Henry's resume as a scientist, a lawyer, and a trained investigator, it doesn't seem like there could be anyone better equipped to prove to the world that ghosts did not exist. All of which led Colonel Henry Olcott to travel to Chittenden, Vermont, to investigate the claims made about the mysterious Eddie brothers. Henry was accompanied on this trip by an artist named Alfred Capps. Henry decided beforehand that he would go in with an open mind, even though he had always been a staunch skeptic in all things paranormal. At the same time, he did realize that if he could prove that ghosts were real, then this would be one of the most life-changing events in human history. Although, he swore that if he determined that the brothers were frauds, then he was going to expose them to the world and let the public tear them apart. On a hot summer day, Olcott took a train to Rutland, the closest hub to Chittenden. From there, he endured a bumpy and dusty stagecoach ride into the grassy valley that sliced through the middle of the Green Mountains. Chittenden was a town of 800 people that Olcott himself called plain, dull, and uninteresting. From there, he headed south to the farm where the Eddies lived. Horatio and William Eddy didn't make much of an impression on Olcott at first. He wrote about them that there's nothing to inspire confidence on first acquaintance. The brothers are distant and curt to strangers. They look more like hard-working, rough farmers than prophets or priests, with their dark complexions, black hair and eyes, stiff joints, and clumsy carriage. They also spoke with a thick Vermont accent that Colonel Olcott found difficult to understand at times. Henry began his investigation by doing what any competent journalist would do, and questioned the brothers about their background. They told Henry that they were descended from a long line of psychics. Their maternal grandmother four times removed, a woman named Mary Bradley, had been convicted of witchcraft in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. The stories of what happened to her after that vary, although some versions say that either her husband or some allies were able to help her escape. From an early age, the brothers always knew their grandmother was different. It was widely believed around the area that she possessed what everyone called the second sight. William and Horatio vividly recalled the old woman going into trances and speaking with invisible entities she claimed were all around them. Their mother Julia also inherited the gift, and she often frightened her neighbors with her scarily accurate predictions. Their father, Zephaniah, was devoutly religious. He was also an abusive, narrow-minded bigot who came to believe that his wife and children were the consorts of the devil. Because her husband was so quick with his fists, Julia soon learned it was prudent to hide her gifts. 
but the paranormal couldn't remain hidden once the couple finally began having children. Practically from the day the children were born, strange events surrounded them. At night, loud pounding could be heard coming from the walls. Disembodied voices could be heard whispering around the children. Occasionally, the infant brothers would vanish from their cribs at a time before they could even walk, only for them to be found safe and sound elsewhere in the house. One time when William was a toddler, he vanished from his bed only to wake up the next morning on a hilltop miles away. As Horatio and William grew up, the supernatural forces that followed them grew stronger. Soon, spirits began materializing before them. On several occasions, Zephaniah would discover his sons playing with other children he had never seen before. But then the mysterious children would vanish as soon as he approached. The parents tried sending the brothers to school, only that proved to be a complete disaster. One day, shortly after they first arrived, a deafening concussion that felt like a bomb exploding shook the entire one-room schoolhouse. Oftentimes, invisible hands would snatch books from the hands of the terrified children. Random objects like inkwells and chalk would often float lazily around the room whenever the Eddie brothers were near. All the supernatural activity that was taking place only drove Zephaniah further and further into a rage. He tried to beat the devil out of his sons, but still the paranormal events continued. The brothers began falling into trances that nothing could awaken them from. Zephaniah would scream in his son's faces and accuse them of being minions of Satan. But when they didn't respond, it only infuriated him further. Then he'd beat them until their skin was covered in bruises, but the boys still didn't wake up. Zephaniah turned to a devout Christian friend named Anson Ladd for help. Ladd talked Zephaniah into pouring boiling water on the boys to snap them out of their trance, but the boys didn't so much as twitch. Then Zephaniah permitted Ladd to drop a red-hot coal into William's hand in the hope that it might drive the devil out of him. William never stirred, although he carried the burn scar on his palm for the rest of his life. Over time, the spirits began to defend the boys against the attacks. They actually managed to drive Zephaniah from the house on several occasions. At some point, Zephaniah decided he couldn't take it anymore. Either he or the boys would have to go. He, of course, chose the brothers. Zephaniah sold William and Horatio to a traveling showman who dragged them all around the United States, Canada, and Europe. People came from all over to see the boys fall into one of their legendary trances. Audiences were invited to come forward and try to wake the boys up. For 14 years, strangers would pile around them, punching them, poking them, and even stabbing them. Both boys were left both physically and emotionally scarred by their time on the road. But despite all that, no one, skeptic or believer alike, could ever stir them from a trance. In Lynn, Massachusetts, they were met by an angry mob convinced they were possessed by the devil. They were pelted with stones in Danvers, and once even shot at. William Eddy was left irreparably disfigured when he was struck by two bullets. William and Horatio were only able to return safely home after their parents died. There they lived with their sister Mary, and the three of them kept the farm and attempted to turn it into a bed and breakfast they called the Green Tavern. After hearing their story, Henry Olcott felt sympathy for the boys. It seemed clear to him now why they were so cold and unfriendly towards strangers. He supposed he would be too if he'd had to endure a lifetime of abuse such as they had. It was a curious thing, though. Assuming the boys had been faking their abilities all their lives, why would they have done so even though they knew 
for certain their father would beat them for it. And another thing, if the two of them were conmen, why did they behave so standoffishly towards their marks? The word con and conman was short for confidence, but these brothers did anything but inspire confidence in people. So how could they have convinced so many visitors they could really talk to ghosts? Colonel Olcott found out his first night on the farm when he got to witness the brothers perform an outdoor seance firsthand. That night in the silvery moonlight of a warm summer evening, a group of ten participants made their way along a well-worn path toward the mountains. The brothers led them into a deep ravine near a mountain brook, and there they assembled in the front of a cave. This place had been formed countless ages ago when a couple of massive flat stones toppled together and formed an arch. The brothers called the place Honto's Cave, named after a friendly Native American spirit whom they claimed often appeared there. Before the seance began, Colonel Olcott took special notice of the way the massive stone slabs were pressed together. He headed inside the cave to look for signs of trickery, or for another convenient exit. He couldn't find either. The massive boulders were pressed so tightly together he was certain there was no way anything bigger than a mouse could possibly squeeze in through there. The front of the cave was the only way in or out. Olcott and the rest of the audience settled down onto crude wooden planks laid across boulders and waited for the show to begin. Horatio Eddy stood on a camp stool underneath the arched stones. It was partially concealed within a narrow makeshift cabinet, constructed from some fabric draped across some saplings. There, in the darkness, Horatio Eddy summoned forth the spirits. What happened next stunned Colonel Olcott. A very large Native American man in full Indian dress stepped out of the dark cave behind the cabinet. Then someone cried out and pointed. There, on top of the cave where it would have been difficult for anyone to climb, stood the figure of another Native American silhouetted against the moonlit sky. Then suddenly another spectral figure appeared, and another, and another. According to Olcott, all told, a dozen figures materialized that night before vanishing all at once. This happened right in front of ten observers, including Colonel Olcott. After the seance was over, Olcott searched the ground where the various figures had been standing for footprints or other signs they had been there. He even managed to climb on top of the rock formation where one of the figures had been standing, but he couldn't find a single footprint anywhere. Olcott was visibly shaken by his inability to find any evidence of trickery, but at the same time he knew it was impossible for all the people he had seen to have slipped by undetected. Nevertheless, he still clung firmly to the belief that there had to be a logical explanation for everything he had just observed. Remember, he was a scientist first, and being a scientist, he knew the best way to conduct an experiment was under controlled conditions. Witnessing something he couldn't explain in the great outdoors was one thing, but he was certain he would be able to come up with a logical explanation under more controlled circumstances. He knew that the house could provide a more controlled environment within which he could determine the brothers' trickery once and for all. He and Alfred Capps went upstairs in the farmhouse to study the room where William and Horatio typically conducted their seances. This so-called circle room was just above the kitchen. When Olcott and Capps went over the room with a fine-tooth comb, they both came away convinced it was nothing more than a room, with solid walls, a ceiling, and a floor. There were no trap doors, no hidden passages, or false panels. Nothing special about it at all. 
He even went so far as to reach out to the newspaper to have them send a crew of carpenters and engineers to look the room over to ensure he wasn't missing anything. But the men the newspaper sent left just as flummoxed as Olcott was. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. According to Colonel Olcott's writings, the seances that occurred in that room followed a basic pattern. Every night of the week except Sunday, an audience would gather and sit on the wooden benches that surrounded a tiny platform, lit only by a single kerosene lamp in a barrel. Upon that platform stood another one of the spirit cabinets, this one a much more permanent fixture than the one the brothers had constructed in the woods. When the seance began, William Eddy, the primary medium, would mount the platform and enter the cabinet. Then, without warning, soft voices would begin to sing all around them. The brothers had left out a collection of musical instruments, and those would rise up around the stage and begin to play seemingly by invisible hands. But this was just the warm-up act. After a brief musical number, then figures would begin to emerge from the spirit cabinet, none of whom were William Eddy. Some of these figures appeared completely solid, while others appeared hazy as if they were made of smoke. Sometimes as many as 20 or 30 figures would emerge from the cabinet over the course of an evening. They ranged in size anywhere from being the size of an infant to over 6 feet tall. William Eddy, it should be noted, was 5 feet 9 inches tall. Mind you, there's an old stage magician's trick called Pepper's Ghost, in which a thin pane of clear glass is used to reflect a transparent image of an individual that appears very ghost-like. It's actually the trick they used to create the dancing ghosts in Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. But in this case, Henry Olcott never discovered any such trickery being used in the room during William Eddy's seances. Most of the apparitions that appeared were elderly Vermont natives, although some were American Indians, and others were from other farther locales such as Africa, Russia, China, and elsewhere. Olcott thought it was madness, but he couldn't figure out for the life of him how the brothers were doing it. The figures that popped out of the cabinet would often perform for the audience, sometimes singing and dancing, or brandishing weapons and musical instruments. They'd sometimes speak in foreign languages, which is how Olcott was able to determine that some of them were from Russia or elsewhere. During the ten weeks he spent in the Eddie home, Olcott estimated he witnessed around 400 different individuals appear from inside that tiny cabinet. The Eddies would have had to have employed an army of actors, not to mention the many trunks of costumes they would have needed to clothe them, none of which Colonel Olcott ever found. Even more perplexing, William and Horatio Eddy never asked for money for their seances, and the meager amount they made running their bed and breakfast would never have been enough to cover the expense of such an enormous acting troupe, as well as all the elaborate magic tricks needed to keep the illusion going. There were other problems as well. The Eddies were barely literate in English, and they surely didn't know how to speak Russian, Chinese, and a half dozen other languages. Furthermore, several of the individuals who emerged from the cabinet appeared to recognize audience members, and vice versa. One woman spoke for several minutes in Russian to the spirit of her deceased husband. Olcott spent ten weeks at the Eddie home, 
During the time he spent there, he witnessed the mother load of paranormal activities. Along with the physical manifestations of all the spirits, Olcott documented unusual rapping on the walls, objects that appeared to move by themselves, spirit paintings and drawings, ghostly writing, healings, disembodied voices, human levitation, clairvoyance, teleportation, and more. There was a reason other spiritualists began to refer to the place as the spirit capital of the universe. Henry Olcott left the Eddy farm shaken in his beliefs. He went on to chronicle everything he had witnessed for the Daily Graphic, and later wrote a book called People from the Other World. That book is over 500 pages long, and full of precise illustrations of the apparitions he saw, the house, and the grounds surrounding the house. The book clearly shows Henry Olcott's careful attention to detail. He collected hundreds of eyewitness testimonies and sworn affidavits from people of all walks of life, laborers, lawyers, doctors, musicians, bankers, farmers, housewives, and historians. All of them had seen the apparitions that emerged from the spirit cabinet. And all of them agreed on one thing. William and Horatio Eddy were the real deal. For example, a man named Franklin Bowles from Hartford, Connecticut, swore that he saw his wife's mother emerge from the spirit cabinet. They locked eyes and they instantly recognized one another. But then, just as suddenly as she appeared... She melted away into the floor, and she was gone. The book contains dozens of stories much like that one. Along with all the eyewitness testimony from people who claim to have seen the spirits, Olcott also collected statements from the many carpenters and engineers who examined every square inch of the room for evidence of trickery. At the end of each seance, Henry would personally search both the spirit cabinet and William himself, only he never discovered anything that pointed toward fraud. No costumes, no musical instruments other than those left out for the ghost to play, no spears, nothing but a man who appeared to put himself into a deep trance. Now there are those who claim they know exactly how the Eddie brothers perform their tricks. In fact, throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, many notable debunkers, including the legendary magician Harry Houdini, eagerly showed gullible audiences how they were being tricked by so-called psychic mediums. If you recall the famous Fox sisters, they managed to make all the mysterious rapping noises that fooled their parents by tying apples to pieces of string and bouncing them off the floor and walls. They even developed a skill where they could manipulate the joints in their knuckles and toes to produce popping sounds in response to questions they attributed to the spirits. When Maggie Fox climbed on stage to show her stunned audience how she did it, she took off her shoe and sock and thumped her toe against a wooden stool to reveal her trickery. Spirit cabinets such as the ones being used by the Eddy brothers were a common staple in seances around the country. Typically, the fraudulent mediums would enter the cabinet and allow themselves to be tied up inside as a way of proving they weren't being deceitful. But in most seances, once the lights went out in the room, then the spooky tricks would occur. Musical instruments hidden inside the cabinet would be played and ghostly hands and figures would emerge from the cabinet. In truth, these were all the medium him or herself, who had secretly freed themselves from the ropes once the curtains were drawn. Then they'd retie themselves right before the curtain opened back up. Now, we don't know for certain that any of these magic tricks were being used in the Eddie house, but there were some people who were thoroughly convinced this is what was going on. There was a famous stage magician who performed under the name Chung Ling Su who thought so. He was really an American magician named William Ellsworth Robinson, and he's actually most well-known for a famous trick he used to do in which he pretended to catch a bullet in his teeth. He'd do this by using a specially modified gun that fired blanks. 
Only during one performance in 1918, something went wrong when a bunch of gunpowder got packed in the chamber and caused the gun to fire a real projectile at him, killing him right there on stage. But long before the man's tragic death, Chung Ling Su actually managed to recreate a pretty faithful replica of the Eddie Brothers spirit cabinet trick and was able to demonstrate that with an accomplice, such as Horatio Eddie himself, he could reproduce many of the tricks they performed for audiences. Another professional debunker and psychical researcher named Herwood Carrington was also able to reproduce some of the tricks the Eddie brothers performed using basic sleight of hand. Carrington was amazed that they'd been able to fool people as long as they did. The fact is, we really don't know how, or even if, Horatio and William Eddie were frauds. An even more important question might be why. Considering they weren't making any money from their deceptions, it seemed like a lot of work for little reward. As I mentioned, they never charged for their seances, and their bed and breakfast only charged $8 per week for people to stay there. And half the time, they didn't even bother collecting that. Over time, Horatio, William, and their sister Mary began to argue, and eventually things grew so heated it drove them apart. Mary moved out of the house and headed to the nearby village of East Pittsford, where she got married and started a family of her own. She eventually began giving seances in her own home and traveling to spiritualist retreats. Sometime later, Horatio moved into a house across the street where he started working as a gardener. He still performed the occasional seance and would even do little magic tricks for neighborhood children. Considering he had begun openly showing his skills as an amateur magician, that's a big red flag for me right there. I think back to the 14 years the two brothers spent on the road in the company of various stage performers, including professional magicians, and I can't help but wonder how much they picked up along the way. Horatio was the first of the brothers to die. Crossing over to the place the spiritualists called Summerland on September 8, 1922, his house was reportedly so cluttered with junk they conducted his funeral services right there on his front porch. William lived on for another ten years. He was reportedly sickened by the thought of his brother and sister going on the road and becoming little more than what he thought of as lowly entertainers. If William had any real psychic gifts, he took those secrets to his grave. By the time his brother and sister moved out of the house, William had completely given up doing seances and conjuring spirits. He went to his own personal summer land on October 25, 1932, at the ripe old age of 99. And what of Henry Steele Olcott? Well, during his stay at the Eddy Farm, he met the noted medium Helena Blavatsky. The two of them became fast friends, and together they would go on to found the Theosophical Society, a group dedicated to what Helena described as the synthesis of science, religion, and philosophy. In 1880, she and Olcott moved to India, where the pair converted to Buddhism, and they began to set up a new headquarters for the society. Helena Blavatsky would eventually leave India and move to London, where she died in 1891. But Henry Olcott chose to stay in India, and he continued living there until his death in 1907. Whether the Eddy brothers were complete frauds or really able to channel the spirits, there is no doubt they had a real lasting effect on the life of Henry Steele Olcott. The former agriculture scientist, investigator, and esteemed lawyer seemed like the perfect person to prove the brothers were frauds. Yet that's not what happened. Henry Olcott left that farm unable to disprove everything he'd witnessed, and it changed him. Henry Olcott went to that farm as the ultimate skeptic, but he left, 
a true believer. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. This episode was brought to you by the generous support of my Patreon supporters. I couldn't do this without each and every one of you. If you're interested in becoming a supporter of the show, just go to our Patreon page and sign up. Patrons of the show get access to all sorts of rewards, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our patron-exclusive mini-episodes. Another way you can help support the show is by subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again for our next episode.